just kidding. Uh, no, that's not the treat. I, I'm, old, I'm old news. Um, but we're going to have a testimony by a couple in our church in a moment. And that's going to be a special treat. A um, couple announcements before we do that. And I want the kids to be in for the testimony. And then we'll, we'll have them go to class. Um, you know, the Tyler Fest is coming up, right? What'd you say? You're bringing pie. That's exciting. What kind of pie are you bringing? Peach pie. Good. Anybody, anybody like peach pie? All right. Talk to Allison. All right. Also, we're going to be having a new Bible study starting for the uh, teens. IGY Bible study will begin on September 24th, Wednesday evening at 5.30. Did I get it right? Wednesday at 5.30. So that's not this week, but the following week. And I believe Steve and Kathy Grunder are going to lead that. All right. Steve, you want to wave your hand? That's how you get Steve to raise his hand in worship. you got to call on him. Okay. Okay. Change the globe. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, it's having its annual retreat October 17th through 19th, so you yeah. put that on your calendar. Talk to Justice or Mike Bond about that. Um, let's see, anything else that's urgent? No, nothing urgent. So it's a great opportunity to hear another testimony. We've been having testimonies lately, um, and we try to do it on the second Sunday of the month. So it is the second Sunday. Yeah, so it's time to give your testimony. No, I'm kidding. It's not good. <laughs> so we're going to have Justice and Laura Whitty come up and give their testimony. Let's welcome them. Up there. No, up there. Up there. Up there. In the glory. Okay, well, I guess I'll start. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Laura Whitty, uh, Justice, and I have been married for two years and three or four months now. So, um, but I am going to give my individual testimony. If you want to hear more about our story, you can come up later and ask about it. Um, I grew up only seven minutes from here, in uh, right next to Lake St. Louis. I was born to um, a very awesome, godly um, couple, and I have four siblings. I'm the oldest of five. We were homeschooled all the way through high school, all the way through 12th grade, and then I went to Lindenwood Whoa. University to get my music education degree, and now I'm teaching choir at Christian High School right at Tom Genever here in O'Fallon. And uh, so I grew up, obviously, um, in a Christian home, and um, it was awesome. At the at a very early age of three or four, I did understand the idea of sin. I can remember a certain period of time, I think I was about three, and my mom had a bunch of little masks for a party or something, and I remember that I really wanted one. And then I took one, and then I hid from her, and I was underneath this table, right underneath where the masks were, and my mom came down, and she was counting the masks, and she realized that there wasn't... Um, you know, the total number that she needed. And so she was yelling up, Laura, where's the mask I need? I'm like right underneath the table. And <laughs> I'm underneath the table. And I, I remember thinking, oh, man, she's going to know. So I have to say I don't know. And I yelled from underneath the table, I don't know. <laughs> and then at that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, I stole something and I lied in three minutes. I'm like a huge sinner. And so even at the young age of three, I did understand the idea of sin. And when I was four, um, I remember being on my bed asking, 
mom to help me, you know, commit my life to the Lord. And so from then on, I did, um, you know, I obeyed my parents. I, I had really great friends that led me to uh, do the things that honored the Lord. But I didn't really understand the idea of a personal relationship with my Savior until I was about a sophomore in high school. When I saw other people around me, I was involved in quizzing and a couple of different things. And I, I remember thinking some people that were worshiping and some people around me had this joy that I didn't have and seemed to know Jesus like a friend. And I didn't quite understand that. And so from... Um, a sophomore in high school, I began to really pursue Jesus and ask and explore the idea of him being my friend and my teacher and my father and my guide uh, more than just someone who created me and loved me. I knew that, but the fact that, you know, he was actually with me uh, and not just, you know, someone in the sky who loved me. He really did truly love me here and now and was helping me get through things. Um, and, you know, the devil doesn't like that when you decide to really commit yourself to the Lord. And so um, I was presented with an idol when I was... Um, my last year in high school, and this was an idol that was um, very hard for me to get rid of, and I didn't want to, so for three years, I focused on this idol and put it before the Lord and before, um, you know, anything else in my life, and that was really difficult because many times I saw the way out and saw that Jesus wanted my life first, and I knew in my heart that he wanted me um, to be his first and to be seeking him, but um, so many times I decided not to give it up, and so um, three years later, I was about my sophomore year in college now, um, and I knew I was a Christian, and I was following the Lord, but it was just, it wasn't my priority. You know, I was going to church and doing all these things, and the Lord finally took the idol from me. And um, he's a very jealous God, and so I knew as soon as he took that from me that I was going to be hurting for a long time. And so um, every night, I was just la- like laying at the Lord's feet saying, I feel worthless, I feel valueless, because this is the thing that I was giving all my worth and value to. And the Lord said, well, that's (laughs) your problem because you weren't supposed to be doing that because I'm the only thing that's going to give you worth and value in your life and the only thing. And so um, I would not be where I am today if the Lord did not take that idol from underneath my feet. Uh, And he's a very jealous God, and he will do that. If you don't give something up to him, he will take it away so that the last thing, you know, you have to do is be at his feet. So I'm very thankful for that. It was at that point also that the Lord really showed me that my parents— were really on my side. I remember my uh, junior, senior year of high school and my freshman and sophomore year in college, my parents and I fought a lot. Um, I thought I was right. I, multiple times I sat them down and would explain exactly how it was supposed to go. <laughs> um, I remember my freshman year of college, I was dorming at Linwood but living at home, which is kind of an interesting thing because you're like kind of away from home, but you're kind of still living at home too. And so I had rules when I was at home and it was, I was supposed to go to church with them. And I sat them down and told them, you shouldn't have to make me go to church. This should be my faith. It should be my decision, blah, blah, blah. And now like I look back and I've told my parents so many times, I'm so thankful that they made me go because if I did not go, I don't know where I would be. You know, it's, it's for that reason that we have parents and we have friends that we are accountable to, um, to help us, you know, follow the Lord. And I'm so thankful for that. And uh, so about <laughs> sophomore year in college, I really realized these two things. I was very thankful for my parents, uh, for their guidance. Um, and I was very thankful that the Lord took something from me that hurt because it led me back to himself. Uh, my life verses are Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And uh, there are many times in my life, even though, you know, I was brought up in a Christian home that I leaned on my own understanding and I didn't trust him with my whole heart um, and I went my own way. But I know uh, now that as long as I, you know, give my life to him and honor him, that he will make my path straight. That was really good. I don't think I'm going to be that good.
Um, so my name's Justice. I think I know most of you, hopefully. If I don't know you, I'd like to get to know you. Um, so as I've gotten older, I turn 28 this year. Yeah, I realize it's, it gets harder and harder, <laughs> harder and harder to fit your life into, you know, a uh, like, you know, a shorter testimony here. But I want to keep it short. So we're, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. Uh, one, I was born into, uh, I was blessed to be born into an awesome Christian home. Um, you can see my family here, my parents and my brother and brother and adopted brother over there. Um, and uh, I was also blessed to be homeschooled, uh, I believe, K through 12 and whatever comes before K. Um, but I was homeschooled all my life and raised in a Christian home, and it was a blessing because uh, my parents, um, not only did they have rules uh, for us to follow, but one of the things I'm really grateful for is that they always, it wasn't just, you can't do that, and I mean, when I was, you know, a little little tyke, it was, you can't do that, because, you know, kids don't quite understand things all the time. But as I got older, it was, okay, so here's, here are principles, and here are, here are the reasons behind, and then, like, a lot of times I got to make my choice. And um, so I'm very thankful that not only did they, like, lay down the law, but they also uh, explained to me why it was important. Um, so I'm thankful and blessed to have grown up in the family that I did, and that's a huge part of uh, of who I am today. I thought of, uh, I can't think of the verse now, but you know, if you train your children up in the way of the Lord when they're older, they won't depart. And my parents, they didn't just tell me what to do, they trained me up. And so I'm blessed by the family that I have. Um, through the first 13 or 14 years of my life when we were homeschooled, we lived kind of out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma and Texas and various places, and I didn't really have friends, okay, um, other than like, you know, turtles and toads and creatures out, yeah. Um, so so when we moved here, uh, we moved into a neighborhood, I think when I was 14 in Troy, Missouri, and we met Scott, who's like the first homeschooler I had ever met. Um, and it was very strange, and so um, we became friends, and we found Liberty. My mom found Liberty on the internet, which doesn't sound weird now, but back in 2000 or 2001, like, you know, it was kind of weird. They're like, you found us on the internet? Um, and so we came to church here, and, like, everyone was homeschooled, and I was overwhelmed. I was like, this is awesome. And so I developed friendships, and I got involved in Bible quizzing and Teens for Christ and the sound ministry here and lots of things like that. And um, the Lord, I think it was in the junior high ministry um, that I really started to understand, like, the relationship aspect and, like, why I was reading my Bible. And I got hungry to read my Bible, and I just started reading my Bible. And so I started to really understand that when I, I, I skipped this part, when I was, like, four Kind of like uh, Laura, I remember, I don't remember much about my childhood, but I have this like image in my mind of going to my mom um, one day and being like, I want to, I want to pray and ask Jesus into my heart. And we prayed and I remember just like a, a joy and excitement. Um, that's about all I remember um, about that. But as I got older and I started going to junior high and I started reading the word, like God started to really like work in my life. And I had friends and I was so blessed and happy about that. <clears throat> but as I went through high school and, and early post-high school, um, the Lord did a lot of stuff in my life that would take a long time to recount. 
but one of the big things was that um, he started to show me that like my eyes needed to be on him and he needed to be number one because I, I didn't have friends before and then I had friends and I didn't realize that I had made these friends like my idol. And so I was involved in ministry and I was, you know, at TFC or the church like every day of the week. But like the Lord wasn't really number one, like relationships in my life were. And so I went through a season where the Lord um, like cut everything out one by one. And um, I knew I had a choice that I needed to be, you know, I, I needed to choose the Lord or I was just going to like go off. And so um, God was gracious and he called me to himself and I spent a, a long season of just like in the word where like God was who I went to and I was like, God, I'm not going to replace you because it had happened various times before where God had cut friendships out and instead of chasing the Lord, I like looked for new friends. And so um, I decided I was going to pursue the Lord and he really started doing a big work in my life um, there. And there's a lot of stuff that happened over those couple of years. I think it was my early 20s, um, late teens, early 20s. But um, God really called me to fix my gaze on him. And I remember during that time, I was there was like everything came together in the one big storm. And I remember I had, um, I was at Liberty. I've been here since I was 14, so almost 14 years now. It's crazy. Um, but I remember at that time, voices were kind of telling me, oh, from different places, you know, you shouldn't really be at Liberty. Um, you know, you should be elsewhere, a bunch of different um, places. But I remember I prayed, and I'm like, well, God, I, I, like, I don't know what to do. But I know that I shouldn't listen to all these voices around me. I need, to, I need to know, like, what you have to say. And I remember praying in the foyer for, like, an answer of, like, am I supposed to be here? Am I not supposed to be here? And uh, Mike Bond came up to me and uh, we used to have church on Saturday nights. You may not uh, know that, but um, he said, hey, we're starting a college ministry. Um, it's going to be on Saturday nights, and I'd like you to help run it. And, like, that's basically the answer to the prayer that I had just prayed. And so the Lord spoke to me that I was supposed to be here. And um, it was difficult because I, as, as times changed and things went on, I remember um, when we switched over to Sunday mornings, I came on a Sunday morning one time, and I just felt like I didn't know anyone. I was like, <laughs> Where am I? Like it just felt different. I'm like I don't I don't know. I was like coming into like my own person. I was like I don't know anyone here. And I remember that uh, the Lord just kind of spoke to me. He's like, Hey, like I know you don't know anyone, but you need to step out and you need to get involved. And so um, the Lord is he he pulled me into Himself and into the Word. And I felt like I didn't have, you know, all the relationships I had in the past with people. I decided I was going to get in and I was going to go and talk to all of you people that I didn't really know. And I was going to make an effort um, to to just go out and do that. And I'm so glad I did because God has just really blessed me through each and every one of you here. And has, has just uh, used you to spur me on um, towards the goal. And so I want to encourage you because it was it was weird for me, but if you are not like plugged in and you're like 100% in here, like just decide this is I'm here and God has me here right now and I'm I'm going to be here and like be in and make an effort to go and and meet people and be with people and be in community and get involved in serving. And as I did that, the Lord just like transformed my heart. And as he worked on all those things with me and really 
you know, solidified that he's supposed to be number one, then the Lord brought my beautiful wife into my life, and um, we got married, and it's been a blessing. So, yeah, that's uh, a little bit of me. <laughs> Great job, guys. Aren't they awesome? So, uh, you met Scott, and you said he was weird? Is that what you said? It was weird meeting another woman. Oh, I see. Okay. Just, just wanted to clarify that. We were all <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were the only homeschool family in the world? Wow. Okay, Dad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Let's, uh, well, let's, stand, let's stand and pray, and then we'll let the kids go to catechism. Father, we thank you um, for your presence here today, and we, we cherish you. We cherish your Holy Spirit. We uh, um, ask that he would teach us the word today. We, um, Lord, want to honor you in all that we do. We want to honor you in even how we hear. We ask that you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us through the word. And Lord, we do cherish your word and thank you for it. We ask that you would um, anoint the teachers today, Lord, and that you would use them mightily in the lives of the young ones. We ask that all that we do today would honor you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um, we've been talking about worship, and I want to continue that discussion today. Um, and in Romans 12.1, Paul exhorts us, based upon what God has done for us, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, if you remember, when we began this, this brief series on worship, we talked about, we looked at John 4, where Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, and he said, uh, he talked about true worship being worship that is in spirit and in truth, right? Spirit and truth. Um, and I want to talk more about that, idea of spiritual worship as we move forward. But what I really want to do today is explain what that doesn't mean, which is kind of odd. But my point is, is that we can take something that's true and then make a false conclusion from it. You understand what I'm saying? So our worship is to be spiritual. And Jesus primarily, I believe in that passage, was telling her that the the primacy uh, in worship belongs to the heart and to the inner man, not to the external forms. She was saying, we worship uh, on this mountain, the Jews worship on that mountain, we do this. They... And it was, it was the external things. It was the location. It was the tradition. And so um, when Jesus told her that true worship is in spirit... I think he was saying that the true worship, the heart of worship is really the heart, right? It's the inner person. It's the soul. It's the spirit. 
It's not the external forms. You can have different forms and still have true worship because the heart is right with God. So that's all true. But the the false conclusion from that is that God doesn't care about the externals at all. But that's not what Scripture says. And in here, in this passage, Paul specifically tells us or exhorts us not simply to present ourselves to God, but as the text says, to present our bodies to God. And I don't think that's a just a happenstance that he says that. I think he's very mindful of what he's saying. Because in verse 1, he's saying, present your bodies to God. And in verse 2, he says, renew your mind. In other words, both body and soul are to be dedicated to God and to his worship. Not just the soul, not just the body, but the body and the soul together. Because what makes up a human being is not simply their soul, but a human being is the union of the soul and the body. Jesus, I mean, God created, right? He created our soul, but he also created our body. Jesus redeemed our soul, but he also redeemed our body. The spirit dwells in our soul, but guess what? He also dwells in our body. It says in Romans 12 that the Spirit gives life to our mortal body. At the end of time, in the culmination of our salvation, there will be, there will be not only a resurrection of the soul, and if you're born again, that's really already happened for you, but there will be a resurrection of your body. So the salvation that God has given us is a comprehensive salvation. Our redemption includes both the inner man and the outer man. We are saved in our soul. We are saved in our body. God redeems our soul. He redeems our body. So therefore, the call, the response to the, to the salvation that God gives us is a call to devote ourselves back to Him, not just in our heart or our mind, but with our soul and our body. And when you read through the book of Romans, Paul says, Repeatedly to present, well, here, let's look at it. Go back to uh, a few chapters to Romans 6. I just wanted you to see his phraseology here. In Romans 6, he says, um, hmm, where do we want to start? Well, it's like you want to start the whole, just read the whole book of Romans, you know, it's all good. Where do you start? Okay. Uh, Verse 8, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead... Indeed, to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon this is true because it is true. It is true. It's it's the truth. Therefore, here's the practical conclusion. Do not let sin reign where? Does he say in your mind? No. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. 
And do not present your members, specifically your members, your hands, your arms, your legs, your mouth, your, your body. Not only your body, but the particular members of your body. He's that specific. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And he uses this phraseology repeatedly in chapter 6, 7, and 8. We are to present ourselves to God as a human being that is fully redeemed in soul and in body. Now, we, we, being fallen creatures, we tend to go to extremes. And so, in certain branches of Christianity, you will see a, uh, almost an obsession with the external. And there's, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a human tendency, I should say, and it's not just in Christianity, toward what we might call ritualism. And the, the problem with ritualism often isn't the ritual. It's the attitude toward the ritual. In other words, it is to rely on the ritual as a substitute for the inner reality. And that's primarily what Jesus is dealing with. It wasn't just that the ritual is wrong, but the ritual isn't sufficient in itself without the heart. So think of the Old Testament. The rituals in the Old Testament were good because they were designed by God, right? Right? So, you're supposed to bring a sacrifice, and you bring the sacrifice to the priest, you lay your hands on the head of the animal, you pray a prayer of confession, he slays the animal, and it's offered up to the Lord, right? So, okay, two different Israelites might go to temple, bring their sacrifice, go through the same form, the same ritual, and one might be accepted by God and the other not. And what would be the difference? The disposition of the heart. The ritual was designed to teach a lesson. So when the Israelite brought the the animal, when he brought his tithe, he was recognizing many truths, one of which that all that he has comes from God. Another truth was that when he laid his hands on that beast and he, he was to identify himself with that animal, that he was a sinner before God. When the animal was slain, he was to recognize that he deserved to die. He was also to recognize that God provided a substitute. I mean, many, 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 many lessons there, okay? The point being is that the ritual was intended to teach truths that the heart was to embrace. Unfortunately, we fall into ritualism, meaning we rely on the ritual apart from the heart. And we think the ritual and the form is sufficient. That, of course, is what the Scripture calls vain or empty worship. That's one problem. But the other problem is is kind of a Gnostic approach to worship and the Christian life, where it all becomes purely subjective. And then there's no connection with the physical realm. A perfect example of this is, and I've shared this story before, but it's, it's such a great story. So years ago, I was leading worship, and during the worship service, I was all pumped up and excited, and I started exhorting the body to lift your hands to the Lord. I'm sure the song says something like, lift your hands to the Lord. So I said, lift your hands to the Lord, lift your hands, you know, one of those deals. 
And you know, I guess a bunch of people did and some didn't. I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. But after church, some, some guy walks up to me and he was like troubled, you know. Like, I just want to let you know that when you exhorted us to lift our, lift our hands of the Lord, I didn't do it, but I was lifting my hands in my heart. Now, I want you to think about that statement. Think about that, because that is very significant. I was, I was lifting my hands in my heart. I said, okay, whatever. I'm like, I didn't really, like, whatever. God's doing something with you, I guess. <laughs> That's bothering him, right? Something's going on. Well, you know, you don't lift your hands in your heart. That's why God gave you hands. <laughs> right? Think about it. Now, if he said, I wasn't lifting my hands, but I was lifting my soul to the Lord. Well, that I get. But he wasn't lifting his hands in his heart because his hands aren't in his heart. His hands are right here. Now, this is like, this is like, okay, we're going to take the offering today. I wish I had an offering plate. Do I have a plate anywhere? Here, can I have an offering plate? Can I have a plate? So, you know, thank you. We're going we're gonna to take the offering today. And we're going to, you know, the offering comes by. The offering plate comes by me. And I say, I give you a million dollars, Lord. <laughs> Is that going to pay the bills? You don't give in your heart. Now, you might give from your heart. But what's going on in the heart has to translate from the heart to your members. To the pen, to the checkbook, right? True. I mean, can you imagine a husband says to his wife, honey, I love you. I love you so much that I had a special dream last night. And I'm not going to say exactly what we're doing, but in nine months, you're going to be pregnant. In your heart. I mean, it doesn't work that way. It, I mean, we have a body, right? We have a body. Some of you are blushing. Oh, boy. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Okay, so, you, you know, the one extreme is, is this ritual reliance. The other extreme is a, is a, a, it's really Gnosticism. It's a separation of the spiritual, a radical, fundamental separation of the, the physical and the spiritual. So when Jesus says to worship in spirit, he's not saying that we don't worship with our members, that we don't offer our bodies to God, that we don't do anything physically. He's not saying that. He's really addressing the problem of insincerity more than anything and kind of an empty form. Now, we're low church. You know what I mean by low church? High church is much more, is much more ritualized. And, um, we, but low churches like us, Bible churches, they have a ritual too. We all, whatever the order of the service is, is what we call it, but it's a ritual. It's a liturgy. We have a form. So we sing certain kinds of music, and we generally have a certain order to the service. Well, that's that's our liturgy. And evangelicals, some evangelicals can can 
make fun of, of high, high church people, or they can make fun of ritual, not realizing that they can be just as guilty of ritualism as the high church. And not only guilty of ritualism, but guilty of the worst form of ritualism, because they can go through a church service without ever fully engaging their soul in what is going on. Whether it's the worship proper, meaning the singing and the praise, or the hearing of the word, or corporate prayer, or anything. You can go through a service and never fully engage your heart and soul and mind and body with what is going on. It's, it's, it's ritualism. So, I want to say a few words about the, the physical aspect of our worship, because as we stress the importance of the heart, we must be careful of not going to the, an opposite error. Okay, and I think it's very important to keep to attempt to keep a balance here. So when we look at Scripture in in its totality, we see that we are told to use our voice, our mouth, and our tongue in worship. This is kind of obvious, right? If you anybody read the book of Psalms, yes, probably the 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 most read book. We are told repeatedly to sing to praise, and to bless God. I'm not even going to look at the scriptures because there are so many. It's it's taken for granted. Um, But in order to sing, you don't just sing in your heart. You actually have to force the air up, up. The diaphragm pushes it up through your lungs, past the vocal cords. Then you got to make the vocal cords get to a certain pitch, right? Then you spit it out. You sing. But we're also told to use our tongue, lips, mouth to shout joyfully to the Lord. Now some churches, if, if you went in and shouted, they would, they would begin an exorcism. Because <laughs> they would say, clearly this person has a demon problem. He's shouting. He's shouting. Even though the Bible says to shout you would be looked at and frowned upon and suspect if you did it. This shows how far our traditions have led us away from the Bible, even in Bible churches. Are you hearing me? You hearing me? We all have our traditions. We all have our comfort zones. But we're told to shout. Now, you're not, not always, but there are occasions when it is appropriate and it is fitting to shout to the Lord. Um, do we need to look at the scriptures? We don't have time. There's plenty of them. Get your concordance out. Look up shout. We're also told to engage our, our hands and our arms in our worship. We're told to lift up our hands in prayer in Second Timothy. We're told in Psalm 63 to lift our hands in worship. In Psalm 141 verse 2, we're told to lift our hands in praise. We're re- repeatedly told to lift our hands to the Lord. <clears throat> um, again, the... The, uh, the, uh, I'll hold that thought. So why do we do this? Why do we lift our hands? <clears throat> because as Matthew Henry said, we lift, in lifting up the hands in prayer, it denotes both the elevation and enlargement of, of desire, the outgoings of hope and expectation, 
He says that in some cases, lifting the hands means a stretching forth of the hands as one begging for alms. I love that. So sometimes we lift our hands and we're really, it's a physical way of expressing we're lifting our soul to God. We're lifting ourselves up. Sometimes it means we're reaching out to Him. Other times it means we're supplicating Him and our hands are empty. We want Him to fill our hands, fill our hearts with His presence. All of these things is signified by lifting our hands. We're also told to clap to the Lord. Um, this expresses what? Joy, exultation, celebration, admiration, etc. You know, ever been to a professional baseball game or football game? Raise your hand. Probably not everybody, most of you. Occasionally I'll buy a program, just because I think if the game's boring, i got something to read, you know. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I, I don't keep up on this stuff, so I don't know all the players and their numbers, so sometimes I'll buy a program. And, you know, looking through the program, I've never seen, like, the section that says, it is permissible to clap your hands when your team scores. I've never seen that in any bulletin, any program. Is that odd? No, it's not odd. Now, if you if you if you watch football, this is football season. I use football. If you watch football and the the quarterback throws a touchdown, especially like a big long fifty yard touchdown pass, you know, and it's your team, do you clap? Some of you clap, some of you shout, some of you jump up and down, just act insane. <laughs> now, are you doing that because you have to? No. What are you expressing when you do that? Joy. You're expressing admiration. When you clap, you're applauding the accomplishment. Right? That's what's happening. And it's a natural thing to do. But what happens is in church, we often come to church and become very unnatural. So we need to think of Jesus as a quarterback, right? Right? So when you think of Jesus throwing a touchdown, like, Jesus conquered sin! Amen! Right? You don't want to clap for that? Let's try it again. How about this? Jesus rose from the dead! Can you clap for that? Yeah! Jesus defeated the devil! Yay! What are you frowning at? I believe that if we saw Jesus, if we saw the things that we say in our songs, we would do that and you, I couldn't stop you. That's the connection with faith that Hannah was exhorting us about earlier. We sing a song about God's love. Do we believe God really loves us? We talk about Jesus conquering sin and Satan. Do we really believe the things that we're declaring? Man, faith is at the foundation of our worship. Because when we truly believe and we see the things that are invisible, the response is natural. We want to applaud. We want to sing. We want to shout. And you don't need a cheerleader. You don't need a cheerleader. So we use our hands to clap to express joy and exultation and admiration. We use our legs. What do we do with our legs? We don't kick our cat. I wanted to this morning. 
I'm going to confess. Cap threw up on the couch. It was almost death. There was almost a burial in my backyard today. I have to confess. Okay. So, what do you do with your legs? What do you do with your knees? You kneel down. You bow. We're told that at the the consummation of all things, when Jesus is truly seen as He is now, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. There will be submission. There will be uh, reverence. And there will be praise and worship and acknowledgement. We kneel, we bow down to express, of course, our humility and our reverence before God's greatness and His holiness. He is King and we are His subjects. Amen. He is high and we are low. And we are to acknowledge that when we bow before Him. Also, God gave us legs so we can dance. The well-known, there are several Psalms that exhort us to do this. Um, this is another beautiful biblical tradition that has been lost in many churches. Some are attempting to restore it, which I believe is a healthy thing. Um, but it shows again how our traditions and customs and cultural mores can cause us to not uh, have a full-orbed worship experience. Uh, David's example in Second Samuel is well known. I wanted to read it because uh, Spurgeon made some important comments on it that I'll read you. Go back to Second Samuel for a minute. Verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, there they go again, and with the sound of a trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. David was excited because the ark of the Lord was, of course, the ultimate symbol of God's presence among his people. He was rejoicing at God's presence, God being in the midst of his people. And his his joy over this overflowed so much that he danced before the Lord. Um, Can I read a a paragraph from Spurgeon? He says this, he says, um, David had been soaring up on eagle's wings. Perhaps never in his life before had he had so enjoyed the public worship of God. He had forgotten everything in the delight of bringing the ark of the Lord home to his own city, where he had prepared a tabernacle for its resting place. He had thrown himself into the gladsome service of the Lord that day. 
Nor had he been alone in joyful adoration, for all the people had been unanimously with him in honoring Jehovah, the God of their fathers. It was a, it had been a high day, a day of days, such a day as the nation had not enjoyed in all of its history. But then he goes on and says this, which is very, very important for our discussion. <clears throat> he said, David that day worshipped God in spirit and in truth. Now, we're, we're commenting on David's physical expression, but Spurgeon's right. Because what he, what he wants us to see, and what I want you to see, is that David's dancing was a reflection of his heart. Not a substitute for his heart. Right? He says, David that day worshipped God in spirit and in truth. A great many people, when they go up to the assembly, are very particular about their bonnets or their garments. Somebody might perhaps notice their bonnets, and this thought weighs heavily on their hearts. I have known people say that they could not go to a place of worship because they had not proper things to go in, their clothes being evidently a great consideration. What a turning aside from God to the tailor. Often people sit in the house of prayer and profess to worship, but they are noticing who is there. And who is not there? And any little slip in the preacher's language is a welcome diversion to them. They think of anybody and anything rather than God. It was not so with David. To him the Lord was all in all in worship. He said to himself, I am the king of Israel, but that I may avow myself to be a true servant of Jehovah, I will put on a linen garment today like a common Levite. And this he did before the Lord. The Lord who searches the heart knew what David meant by his dress, meaning the the linen ephod, and by playing upon the harp, and by his leaping and dancing in the midst of the people. It was before the Lord that he showed the excessive joy. And if others happened to be there as spectators, he did not repel them, but he did not restrain himself. That's important. So good. So good. He worshipped in spirit and truth. And the, the, the playing, the singing, the dancing in David's case was a manifestation of the state of his heart. Finally, we're going to conclude with Psalm 150, which I read at the opening. Psalm 150 is the summation, if you will, of the book of Psalms. <clears throat> And here we are exhorted to use our hands, our arms, our mouth, our breath, all that we are to worship God, to play, if you will. It says, Psalm 150, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent Greatness. So here, here we are exhorted to praise God repeatedly in the first two verses. We're told why to praise Him in verse two, because of His great acts and because of His own inherent greatness. So we're told why to do it, but then we're told how to do it. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. So, so 
we worship God in spirit, meaning we are to devote our hearts to Him, give our hearts to Him, focus our minds and our attention on Him, but we also devote our bodies. And when Paul exhorts the Romans, back in Romans 12.1, he says, present your bodies not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. And he's clearly playing on the Old Testament custom of slaying the animal. We've already been slain, friends, because we died with Jesus. We've been resurrected from the dead in Jesus Christ. Our spirits are renewed. We're born again. We have eternal life dwelling in us. We have the life of God dwelling in us. Ought we not to be alive? And so that's what God wants us to offer back to him. A living, a, and, and some of the, the older Puritans uh, say, a lively a lively sacrifice. Did you like that? A lively sacrifice. That means you're not looking at your cell phone. You're not doing email. You're not making lists about what you got to do today. You are lively. You're giving your body to the Lord during worship. Now, I just want to say this. Um, how do I say this? You don't know because you don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, we, we need to, we need to be careful in this whole discussion of worship and expressions of worship, not to be judgmental. Okay? Because the reality is you don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. Sometimes when we're worshiping together, I'll feel like I want to sit down and and not sing, not do anything. I just want to be quiet in God's presence. Even though the songs are like, "Yay, Jesus," you know. But at that moment, I'm I'm in a different place, and it's a good place, not a bad place. It's a good place for me. Okay? So you you can't always tell by what's going on physically with somebody what's going on internally with them. And as a matter of fact, you shouldn't be thinking about anybody else other than yourself anyway. I mean, that's the truth. If, if the person in front of you distracts you every week, then find a different seat. I mean, it's really that simple. It's really that simple. I mean, it's like, you know, we should, we should not be judging other people. We should, I mean, if we're judging other people, then we're doing the one thing we're not supposed to be doing, which is worshiping the Lord, focusing on the Lord. You need to focus on the Lord. This is about you and your relationship with Him. Okay? Um, so... You need to worry about that and, and don't worry about anybody else. The other, the other thing, the other side of that coin is this, is that I can't tell you, if I had a, a nickel for every time somebody said to me, you know, during church I felt like God wanted me to pray, but I didn't. You know, during church God wanted me to share a scripture, but I didn't. You know, during church I wanted to shout when you said this, but I didn't. It, I would be a rich man. I would. And so there, there has to be an understanding of liberty in our worship, and that's liberty to do, and it's liberty not to do. Okay, now, do you understand what I'm saying? If you do, say yes. yes. Okay, so liberty to do, but liberty not to do. Okay, uh, I don't want people doing things because they're feeling coerced to do them. I don't want, but I, the other side of the coin is I don't want you not expressing yourself in in a way that's edifying to you because you're worried about what other people think about you. Let me tell you something. When you stand before the Lord 
you're not going to care. Now, you remember what it was like when you were in high school and you thought it was everything was so important, how you dressed and who, what girl liked you and what book. Who cares? I mean, that's the way it is. We're going to get to, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to like, why did I care about what Joe thought about whether I raised my hands at church or not? We're just, it's going to, it's not important. So, you have to balance those two things. You, you, you need to worship the Lord in a way that is, is appropriate and edifying for you. Um, and there's one more thing I wanted to say and I can't remember. Oh, yeah, this. Um, I do want to say this, though, for some of you. For some of you need to move out of your comfort zone. And this is a pastoral comment. This is not biblical commentary. Okay. Now, this might seem odd to you, but I remember the first time I raised my hands to God. It was that significant for me. And I, you know why I did it? Because the Bible told me to do it. One day I was reading the Bible and God said, do what I tell you to do in my word. I said, okay. And I thought it was weird. I'm being honest with you. I thought it was weird, but I did it. Okay. And it was important that I did it because, uh, not because, you know, there's something magical about this, but with the magical part of the experience though is that my will, my will submitted to the word of God. Are you hearing me? And it seems like a trivial thing, but let me tell you something. Some of those little things like that are, are game breakers when it comes to your Christian life. Some of you are stuck in places, and part of it is you won't surrender in this area. Now, other people, maybe it's the area of giving. Other people, maybe it's the area of evangelism. I don't know. I, you know, That's between you and the Lord. But it's like some of these things are issues. They're just issues. And no matter how many times the worship team is like, lift your hands to the Lord. By golly, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Now, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. It's not going to save you. not going to condemn you. But I can tell you this. If this is your attitude toward the Holy Spirit, you've got a problem in your Christian life. Okay? It's, it, then it transcends this discussion of worship. It's a much bigger problem. Okay, But I think there's some people like that. There, some of us are like that. Well, that, that's not the way I've done it, so I'm just not going to do it that way. And, and you need to submit to the Holy Spirit. Whatever he's doing in your life. And I mean whatever he's doing, not just in the area of worship, but I mean every area of your life. Do You need to submit to the Holy Spirit. He's trying to work in your life. He's trying to change you. He's trying to bless you. He's trying to guide you and lead you. And if you, if you have a stiff neck, it will not go well for you. Okay? And unfortunately, the Holy Spirit moves us into new territory. Are you hearing me? New territory. He challenges us to do things that are out of our comfort zone. Because he's growing us up in Jesus. And he's trying to make us mature and complete as the body of Christ. So, you know, 
to discuss the physical aspects of worship is not an attempt to get anybody to perform. Okay? The only person watching your performance that is important is the Lord. He's watching. And I mean he's watching. He's really watching. He's watching what we do. He's watching if we mean it. He's watching how we do it. So it's really important. But it's for him. It's not for me, not for the worship team. It's for him. Amen.